Well, today uh, we're going to go to the purpose of uh, evangelism. They're in the back. Did we run out of handouts? Did we make more? I think they might have gotten devoured. Okay. Well, I'll just try to try to work with what we have, and we'll get some more next week. Sorry about that. Um, but I wanted to talk about just a purpose for evangelism and how um, when you share your faith, if you have the wrong purpose, um, it can really, I think, derail efforts to become a faithful evangelist. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in college, I did a summer mission trip to Myrtle Beach. You guys ever been to Myrtle Beach? It's kind of the Redneck Riviera. Really nice beach, a lot of rednecks. Uh, especially in the early 90s, which is when I went there. And, uh, but it was kind of Bible Beltish too. And it was, I, would, I went out with a Christian ministry and we did a lot of contact evangelism. And that was a time where I just felt this compulsion that I needed to share my faith because all these people were going to hell. And I remember one night I went out and it was an especially difficult night because nobody wanted to hear a thing. And I just kind of went back just feeling like a, a failure, right? I couldn't even get into the conversation. The conversations went nowhere. Nobody seemed interested. Nobody wanted to convert. You know, I kind of felt like a, a failure, right? And I kind of looked back at that time, and it was almost as if um, the job of an evangelist is to convert other people. Right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Like, you, you know, you, you measure success. Like, the job of a salesman is to make sales. Right? The job of a lawyer is to convince a jury. And if you are not successful at that, then what kind of evangelist are you? Right? So that's kind of where I was with that. And I, and I kind of had to do some reorientation to, I think, kind of rethink what is my purpose for sharing my faith? Because I think if you have the wrong purpose, it can lead to a lot of like discouragement and defeat. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the rubric that we're going to really talk about today. We're going to just talk about motivation. So uh, page 10, you know, use a little catechism for you. If you guys are familiar with the Westminster Catechism, uh, one of the, the opening line is the chief aim of man. Can anybody complete that for me? Is to glorify God. Yeah, glorify God. <coughs> and to enjoy him forever. And, I'll, and that's a biblical concept, which I'll establish a little bit later on. But you know, if the chief end of man is to, to glorify God, uh, what would be the chief aim of God? What do you guys think? What would be the chief aim? What's God's chief aim? You ever thought about what God wants to accomplish? What's the most important to him? Huh? To be glorified, right? Right, you look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, right? God's chief aim is to glorify himself. Now, is that egotistical? Why isn't that egotistical? He's deserving. He's deserving of it, right? Yeah, he is. I mean, it's his universe, right? Created for his purposes. And so this whole theme of glory, I think, is going to be a theme that we're going to see as far as just God's motivation for everything he does. So somebody want to read Ephesians uh, 4, uh, 1, 4 through 6? 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Yeah. We'll save the debate about predestination for another time, okay? But, I mean, what is his purpose for his actions according to this passage? Okay, what do you see? I need you to rephrase or say that yeah, again because why I does God it. predestine the elect according to this passage I mean look at verse 6 thank you um, right to the to praise, praise of his glory and grace right so it's the grace. reason why God you know brings people to himself is for the purpose of his glorification right to glorify his grace um, Matthew 5.16, somebody want to read that? We have some space up here. By Sam. Are you man-spreading Sam? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to read Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so what's the purpose of people, Christians, engaging in good works? Yeah, to glorify God, right? And to get others to glorify God. And get others to glorify God. Now, according to the following passages, what objective drove Jesus' life and ministry? So, when we want to read uh, John 17. Volunteer for that one. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Okay. And then John 14, 13. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All right. And then John seventeen one. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Okay. So according to those passages, what's Jesus' objective for his ministry? He wishes to glorify. Yeah, he wants to glorify uh, his father. Um, according to Isaiah 43, 25, what ultimately drives God to forgive our sins? And why might this be surprising? Okay, Isaiah 43, 25, you want to read that? I, yeah. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Okay, so why does he forgive your sins? For his, own sake. for his own sake, right? Why is that kind of surprising? He gets nothing out of that. Well, no, he says that for I, I forgive for my own sake. Right, but I mean, you're the res, you, the benefit is for you. Yeah. And he, I mean, you think it's for your sake. I forgive yeah, you your think sins. It's for your sake. Right. 
But here he's saying it's for my sake that I, I forgive your sins. Right? Kind of interesting concept. Uh, and then 1 Corinthians 10.31. How are we to live our lives? Somebody want to read that? 10.31? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay. So, I mean, eat, drink, whatever you do is to, glory, is to the glory of God. So you see this term glory. Um, it's one of those Christian words I think we kind of throw around quite a bit. But I'm kind of surprised that a lot of people don't quite know what it means. Right? So what, if you were to just kind of define glory, or maybe what synonyms or what thoughts come to your mind when you hear the word glory or glorify? Praise. Yeah, so you'd have praise. Honor. Honor. kind of getting the gist, right? And so, you know, you have like worthy, revere, superior, exalt. I mean, there is kind of like a, a sense where, you know, God is up here, you know, and man is down here, right? So he's in a, an exalted position, so we exalt him, right? He's in a worthy position, so we worship him. Um, He's in a revered position, so we revered him, right? So there's kind of this upward praise, glory, and all of that, right? That's the action that we do, recognizing the status. And a lot of it is because who, you know, who God is, okay? And that term, um, uh, glory, kavod in the Hebrew, means uh, weighty. Uh, like, and the idea is like if I were to give somebody a bag of money back in that day and it was a bit heavy, you're like, oh, good news, right? So there's a weightiness, there's a worth, there's a value to it. And when man worships God, we kind of ascribe that to him. Now, there's other things about God where he kind of like radiates his glory, right? And he does things to kind of show kind of what makes him glorious. Right, so his works show that he's glorious. Um, he expresses his glory in um, kind of this blinding, unapproachable light, right, where people see the light and they kiss the dirt immediately. Um, and then you have even the issues like what makes him glorious, right? What is his glory? Like it talks about how you know a, a wife is a man's, you know, a wife is her husband's glory, right? Makes the husband look good. Um, some of God's works give him glory. A lot of his character gives him glory. Right? So the whole 
The whole purpose when we talk about glorifying God is basically understanding that he is the most glorious being in the universe. All worth, value is found in him and extends from him. Does that make sense? And so when you look at Jesus' purpose, Jesus' purpose was living his life in light of God's glory and light of who he is. And so one of the things that we find in scripture is a rejection of that concept, right? That our natural inclination is not to give God glory, okay? So you look at Exodus 30, 34, 14. Somebody want to read that? For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous. Okay. Jealous God. Now we talk about being jealous. Is he like <coughs> jealous of you? Whoa. What's it being talked about here? Like God is just like this spiteful, jealous. Why do you get all the attention? You're worshiping something besides God. He's jealous for that glory, not for... Yeah, and you make a great distinction. There's a difference between being jealous of and jealous for, right? Like, is it wrong for a husband to be jealous of his wife? Is it wrong for a husband to be jealous for his wife? No, right? So there's kind of an understanding that you're giving to someone else something that belongs to me. You're right, I'm jealous for that. And so that's who, um, yeah, that's who God is, right? Now, does God have a right to be jealous for worship? Why or why not? Why does he have a right to be jealous for worship? I see all the head nodding, so we'll say that's the answer. Um, he created it. Instituted everything. Mm-hmm. He has a right to say and be jealous of the things that we are yeah. falsely worshiping. That is about as if yeah. they were above him, and mm-hmm. he's not because he's instituted them in creation. Yeah, I mean, you kind of get if you want to have like a really deep, you know, conversation. Um, why did God even create us to begin with? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why, why did God even create us to begin with? Yes, to bring him glory, right? Not to give him a headache. Not that he could sit back and just, like, you know, destroy people and have fun because he's bored, right? There is a, there's a higher purpose for it. So here's another passage, Isaiah 42, 8. Um, who wants to read that one? Yeah, Ryan? I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Okay. So how does this passage help us to understand God's regard for idolatry? He hates it. He hates it, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Why does he hate it? Because it takes the glory away from him. Exactly. To <coughs> created things. Yeah. John uh, 5.44. Who wants to read that? <clears throat> yeah, Nate. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? 
Now this is pretty interesting. Okay, so he's talking to um, his audience's desire to, in the passage, Jesus confronts his audience's desire to follow men who claim to be the Messiah. These men would create a following by telling the audience what they wanted to hear, affirming the values they already own. Right, so they wanted somebody who's for their national glory. Now, why can't you? Why can't someone receive glory from men and glorify God at the same time? By receive maybe welcome glory from men and glorify God at the same time. What do you think? Well, there's a couple. I mean, one, God says that He's not going to share His glory with anyone. I mean, at the same time, that idea of weight, I mean, nothing can uphold the, the weight of glory. Everything mm-hmm. is crushed when we worship it because it's nothing else is worthy of that mm-hmm. glory and that praise. Mm-hmm. Well, how does someone's desire to receive glory maybe impact their choice of religion? Well, like can obviously pick a religion that makes you look good like a lot of celebrities pick Buddhism because mm-hmm. it's like the in thing mm-hmm. yeah I think about Mormonism you guys familiar with that mm-hmm. you're a good enough Mormon you can become a yeah. god <coughs> if you marry a good Mormon you can become a goddess right who wouldn't want that and I think there's the other part of it too where if you're somebody who, you know, seeks glory from others, you wouldn't want to put yourself in a religion where you have to give glory to God and not mm-hmm. receiving it yourself. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you can't humble yourself, then you yeah. don't want to. Yeah. That's good. Hey, why, why does a follower of Christ need to rescind his lust for glory? Because it doesn't glory doesn't belong to him, it belongs to God. Yeah. So let's look at uh, John 12, 42 to 43. Let's read that. <coughs> Darling, want to get that? John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Yeah. Okay, who's seen the first season of The Chosen? Okay, there's a real interesting subplot. I think probably the best thing about that first season is um, Nicodemus. So the way they portray it is Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He is the... Uh, he lives a very good life. He's the traveling conference speaker. Yeah, when he goes into the town, everyone kind of rolls out the red carpet. Uh, he's respected by all. He has people kissing up to him. And when he kind of investigates Jesus, um, he realizes that he really is the Messiah. And so, you know, he has this night where he is weeping. He realizes the Messiah has come. Jesus invites him to follow him. And after that, there's many references where he's having this conversation to, with his wife. And his wife just talks about how much she loves their life. She loves the travel, loves the money, loves the wealth. 
And so Jesus says, I want you to meet me at this place, and then you'll follow me. And in this scene, you see Jesus waiting for Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is kind of behind a wall, hiding himself from Jesus, and he's just in tears, weeping. And Jesus looks down, and he, he sees a bag of money, and it's like, you were so close, <laughs> right? And now I'm sure season three or four, you know, we're going to go mm -hmm. back to Nicodemus, but it was just a real... I think a, a real visual picture of what's being talked about here, where he didn't really want to leave his life because he just loved it. You know, many of these Pharisees knew, I, I work really hard to get this position. If I follow this Messiah, people are going to think I'm a nut, and I'm going to lose it all, right? That, that glory that comes from men is going to be gone. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think in kind of a general way, I mean, how do people seek glory today? Social status. What is that? Social status. Social status. The same as Nicodemus. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Money, uh, your job, <coughs> your status in your workplace, your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Influencers. Being an influencer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. <coughs> Social media is just very obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't be. You literally get followers. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Isn't that? I mean, the more you stop to think about it, it's like, oh. Mm. Yeah, but otherwise. None of them are being asked to pick yeah. up their cross. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how else do people, like, seek glory? Social media is full of it. Otherwise, I think uh, you know, Chris and I love sports, and when our kids play sports, I mean, that's a very real temptation. You're just seeking out. You want to win. You want to compete. You want to be mm -hmm. the best. Yeah. And look at me. Look at us. Uh, yeah, you go watch my like football games. Have like a big button. That's right. Huge his jersey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's son. That's my boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any kind of competitive, seeking out awards, yeah. acknowledgements, being a stage mom. So, yeah. Right. So I think yeah. So that's the thing. Like there is this natural reality where all of us are glory seekers in some way. Right. That's endemic in society. Um, you look at Romans five uh, twenty five. <clears throat> I'll just read this. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? Natural man, right, has, you know, they will actually, instead of worshiping the invisible God of the universe, they will take a block of wood, coat it with gold, and bow down and worship it. Right? They'd rather worship the creature instead of the creator. You know, I think having a lesser God who's less powerful um, you can have more of a reciprocal relationship with them. And when you kind of understand, like, Old Testament idolatry, I think it's one of my favorite topics to study because it's just, uh, it's just so revealing about the human heart. And so the way a lot of these idols would work is, you know, the idols would live, let's say, on the top of Mount Olympus, 
and they would have like a statue of the idol, and it's like that. That was like a closed circuit television, right, where you can access your idol through the statue, and these idols needed to be fed, and so you'd put your oranges or your sacrifice in front of this idol, and that was a way of kind of serving them and offering them up. So they needed something from you, right? And when you give it to them, you know, they would in turn give you a favor. Or you can pit one idol, you know, one god against another god, and that was a way of kind of manipulating them so that they would go ahead and do what you want. Right? So when you look at, let's say, magic and incantations and spells, it's all about trying to manipulate the spirit world so that they will do your bidding, right? And so for that whole system to work, you had to have a lesser god, right? Because if you had a lesser god, you can get this other god to get this lesser god to do what you want. Does that make sense? And so that's why, like, having the notion of, like, a one God, there's no other gods, means that you're completely at his mercy, which is why a lot of people just kind of had a hard time with it. Does that make sense? And so <clears throat> man's pursuit of glory means that they often try to diminish the glory of God. That is our natural response. And so um, a lot of, uh, I, and I think that type of, of mindset um, has shaped many modern gospel proclamations, okay? So here's a tract I came across. Um, yeah, and the key point is, right, glorifying God in evangelism means that we persuade men to give the glory to God instead of themselves. So here's a tract. You matter to God. God loves me. God can be trusted. God forgives me. God transforms me. God guides me. God uses me. God satisfies me. And then now what? Right? So what do you think about that gospel outline in light of everything we just talked about? God is serving you. Yeah, God is serving you. You guys ever been in churches or heard gospel presentations that are kind of geared this way? Yeah, this is something that's called um, the felt needs gospel. Okay, very popular in the 80s and the 90s. And this is how it developed. Um, you know, during that time was a period where people engaged in what's called the church growth movement. Uh, they would go around and knock on doors, and uh, Robert Schuler was the one who kind of pioneered this. Knock on doors and ask, do you go to church? You do? Okay, God bless you. You go to another door. You know, do you go to church? No, I don't. Okay. Why don't you go to church? What would it take to get you into church? And one of the answers was, you know, no stodgy liturgy. Liturgy needs to be relevant, and we don't like hearing fire and brimstone preaching. Right? And so telling people about the fires of hell and the need to be saved uh, was not appealing to the people they're trying to bring into the church. So they had to explain kind of another reason why people needed to come to faith that doesn't necessarily mention hell. And so kind of enter, you know, during the time of psychotherapeutic self-fulfillment, uh, they did the felt needs gospel. It's like Jesus can meet 
your deepest needs. Okay, and if you kind of turn the page, uh, I'm going to turn my page. Um, you kind of have like a little um, little diagram here about um, you know the felt needs gospel, right? So part in the primitive art. I copy and pasted this from the book. I did not draw this myself. Although if I did draw it myself, it looked worse. So you kind of have. Got cut. I think it's so primitive it's blank. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it got cut off at the bottom. Can you draw it on the... Do the another page. No, okay. no, no, the next page is... Oh, no, like, can, can, you can you draw it? Can you draw it on the... Yeah. Scott's good at Venn diagram. Yeah, it's not a Venn diagram, though. I don't know. Okay. Well, look at the circles. Here I am. I degrade my drawing ability. Now I'm putting it together. You have, you have two, I'm going to do two cups here, right? Yes. Yes. Right? So you have two cups, and um, basically, this is the cup that, where you have like, this is your heart, and out of your heart is this dinky Charlie Brown Christmas tree that is dry, that is unloved, unfulfilled, doesn't have security, and it doesn't have significance, right? They're wounded and they are broken, <coughs> right? Here's another, you know, cup, same thing. You know, wounded, you know, are you lonely, unfulfilled, unstable, have an unfruitful marriage? Well, here you have the cross, right? They are drawn to that's clearly a cross, right? Right. Oh, yeah. So, somebody comes to Christ, and it's like they have this new attachment, you know, to the cross, and they're rehabilitated. And next thing you know, you have all these, you know, fruits. <coughs> and, wait, I got green. Oh, yeah. All over, right? So, it's, uh, so basically, when you come to Christ, you, be have, you have meaning, you have fulfillment, and this uh, cup over here is just full of blue water, right? Yeah. So, well done. Thank you. <laughs> Not as good as you, Scott, but I do my best. You're good. <laughs> so that is that's kind of the what's called the felt needs gospel. I mean, has this? I mean, I grew up on on this, right? You hear about how Christ can help you get over your anger, how Christ can get help you get over your bitterness. Now, is it true that Christ can? To a certain extent, right? But really, who's at the center of this gospel? You are, right? Uh, have, are you guys familiar with, let's say, prosperity theology? Right? Name it, claim it. Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn. I mean, there's this idea that if you believe in something strong enough, God will give it to you. I mean, I have seen, um, I remember watching a football game and. Uh, a uh, player on the Chiefs got a very key sack in overtime at the end of the game. And he just said, you know, I just knew that Jesus was going to do something great for me today. I just called out on the normal name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I got to him, right? So even that, right? Christ made me a better football player. All glory to God, right? There's, there is kind of that sense where I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, never mind the fact that's talking about you know, being sustained while you're in prison. That's like... I can overachieve because of what Christ did for me, right? So there's kind of this thing where Jesus is like this add-on, 
and Jesus can help you become your better you. Okay, all that making sense, guys? Kind of see that? And so that's one of the things where, when that is the purpose of the gospel, I mean, that's contrary to the very thing that the gospel is trying to persuade people to do, right? Is to pick up your cross, right? Die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, right? It's to surrender to your own sense of entitlement and glory. Okay, any questions about that? Any thoughts? Well, the problem with that way of thinking is if you lose your job, if, yeah. you know, if, if things don't go right, who's, whose fault is it then? It's God's fault because God is supposed to give you all these things. Yeah. It's, then you're just going to you know, have more of a temptation to walk away because, well, I signed up for this because God could help me with my anger and I just lashed out and beat up you know, mm-hmm. somebody. It, it's bad, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, why didn't God do that for me? Yeah. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests you will not suffer for right. him. And yeah. you you will feel affliction mm-hmm. all along the way. I yeah. agree with that. The opposite the opposite end is true too. It's just as unsatisfying to you know everything God makes everything great but you're not focused on his glory. Mm-hmm. Like, oh this is I mean it's such a lesser end and lesser Goal. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, it's like, uh, is it Mishkamir Christianity where he talks about the pl- he's playing with the mud, mud pies, mud pies, yeah. so he, right? It's like, okay, you know, I'm not sick and I'm not yeah. like, for a time, it's great, but it's not, doesn't have the weight. And yeah, I mean, I think, like, and honestly, when you're me-centered, I mean, there's not a lot of joy in being me-centered, right? Like, if you look at two children, one is me-centered and one is not, who's the happier child? One who's not. One who's not, right? So I think that's one of the big lies, is that you need to glorify yourself. And the thing is, we're like these lustful pits for glory, right? There, it will never be enough, right? They'll, you know, well, they like me, but these people don't like me. I mean, you look at those, those Instagram influencers, Right? How much is enough for them? And then if you kind of reach the pinnacle where you're number one, well, you have to guard your territory so you still maintain number oneness. Right? There's, there's a reason why a lot of people like that are on, on meds. Right? They, they are deeply unhappy people versus somebody who kind of renounces that. And, yeah. so, and there's that sense in which, you know, when you're not... When you're pursuing whatever it is, wealth or popularity, like you can still have the believe the lie that that will be enough, right? Yeah. And it's that's where those those people are so crushed, and because they've reached the top and they've yeah. achieved it, and they finally they're crushed by the fact that it's not mm-hmm. there is nothing else for me to pursue, and I'm still yeah empty. Yeah. So I think there's a sense where part of the gospel is get over yourself and give glory to God. There's a really good line. I, I love I love the movie Boyhood. It's great, great movie. But at the very end, the, the mom gets to the end and she says, I thought it would feel different. And it's that feeling of you get to something at the end and you're just, you yeah. expected that feeling and then you, I thought it would feel different. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's wrecking yeah. for those who get there. 
Yeah, so part, so all this is like part of the motivation of evangelism is we need to get people to rescind giving glory to themselves and give glory to God. Okay, that's what we're calling them to do. So that's one motivation. Um, another way, you know, as people who are called to do that ourselves, you know, we're called to give God glory and give God glory in evangelism. One way of doing that is uh, in evangelism. Okay, so let's go to page, I'm on page 15. Um, Matthew 23, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, 34 through uh, 40. Who wants to read that one? Jason, do you have that? Yeah. Yeah. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay. So what are the two greatest commandments? First one is to love God, right? Second one is to love others, others, right? So how are we to apply the single greatest commandment? Somebody want to read these passages for me? Scott, you got that? No, I don't. Okay. Somebody have John 14, 21? Do you want to? No. Scott has it now. No. No. Uh Uh-huh. Asking you shall receive, right? That's right. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will Mm -hmm. disclose myself to him. Mm -hmm. And then 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right, so if we love God, what are we going to do? Obey him. Obey him, keep his commandments, okay? So according to following passages, what commands are included in the single greatest commandment? All of them. But I, I have two examples here, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Julie, do you have that one? Yes. And Liana, why don't you get the next one, Acts 1, 6 through 8. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, Liana. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know. Times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even the to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, so what's the essence of those commandments? To spread the word. Yeah, to make, make disciples, right? And so part of obeying, you know, glorifying God is to obey his, is to love him, right? Part of loving him is obeying his commandments, and part of his commandments are to make disciples, you know, of all, of all nations, right? That's something that all of us are called to do. And, um, right, so on a very basic level, every time you share your faith, out of obedience to him, God is glorified. And that's a great thing. I think there's another sense where, um, you know, sometimes if you, if you love someone, there's kind of an openness to talk about it. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read this one, Psalm 96, 1 through 6. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth. 
Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of all the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Right? You know, this is a very international psalm, isn't it? Right? And what's driving this praise and this desire for other people to praise God? Glory, right? All of his glory. Have you guys ever been like excited about, let's say, maybe a restaurant or some gadget you found? Or maybe you might be excited about a church, right? I mean, a lot of times when you're excited about something, what do you want other people to do? Right? You need to sign up. You need to check this out. You need you need to watch this movie. Right? It's great. Right, so if you're really excited about something, one of the natural extensions of that excitement is for the people that you care about to enjoy it as well. Does that make sense? So I think in general, if somebody's just excited about the Lord, uh, and that's why like new Christians are some of the best evangelists. Right? They are excited about it. This is the greatest thing. You wouldn't believe it. I can't believe anybody would tell would say no to anyone. Right? That's, you know, so that's kind of driving it. Uh, another one is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 14. Anybody want to get that? Andrew, you want to get that? <clears throat> Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest. Also in your conciseness, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Okay, so what can Paul tells Paul to share his faith? Jason, what do you see? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So what do you think is meant by the fear of the Lord? I mean, does Paul fear that he's going to be smitten or be by God if he doesn't share his faith? I think it's him knowing who God is. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding. Yeah, I mean, I think just having a high view uh, of God, right? I mean, I mean, so how? I mean, if you really fear the Lord, I mean, how would that drive you to share your faith? You have His interests in mind. Mm-hmm. It's a protection. I like what you say. It's a protection of the funds. If he gave you that commission, that great, the great commission, and you are charged with doing that, and you choose not to, what does yeah. that put you against him? Or yeah. does it put it against you against yeah. him? And why are you reserved in that? 
-hmm. you if you fear things in this world like I fear doing that Mm -hmm. where should your fear really be Mm-hmm. <laughs> we talked about a guy that yeah. the, the, the the creator <laughs> and yeah so that's that kind of puts things in perspective mm-hmm. with it yeah you know? so that's how I kind of see it yeah yeah hell else I mean if you see somebody who really fears the Lord why would they be motivated to share their faith you want to obey God mm-hmm yeah, you, you understand that he's worthy of obedience, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I noticed. When somebody really fears the Lord, they have a real conviction, right? This is real. This is true. I mean, conviction means you're super convinced, right? Somebody who fears the Lord, like it, it flavors everything that they do in their life. They have this conviction that God is always watching and God is always present, right? And, the, and I think they're able to just kind of see things through like a spiritual grid at all times, right? They, do you know what I'm saying? They, they look past the physical to the spiritual. What are the real issues that are going on here? Um, yeah, and I think that's what Paul, I mean, Paul was a man who just lived with tremendous conviction, and that's what led him to do it. Yeah, I think that, too, there's a sense in which the fear of the Lord drives out other fears, fears of man, yeah. fears of failure, fears, because... You know that he he uh, he says it relative to those other things that you're fearing. There's no no comparison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And let's say you're sharing your faith, and <clears throat> you know somebody starts getting hostile and they start mocking you. Okay, they want you to be afraid of them, right? Mm-hmm. But somebody who fears the Lord is going to be afraid for them. Yeah. See the difference? Because you, your whole life is framed in that way, and and that's why you know the fear of the Lord leads to this tremendous conviction in how people live. Like this is real. I'm not joking around. Okay. Any other thoughts on the fear of the Lord? I mean, I think the other thing it does, like the excitement, is I've discovered this great thing, and I want you to discover it too. The fear is, God is worthy of all my worship and yours. Yeah. And it's almost the, like, um, the indignation Mm -hmm. at not living for his glory and not Mm -hmm. um, honoring him with our lives that would lead us to tell somebody else, um, not just, here's this great thing that can change your life, but this is the God who made you and who deserves your worship. Yeah, it's a different approach. So, you know, you ought to try Jesus sometime. You're kind of lonely and stuff like that. You ought to try Jesus. I did. It's the best thing I've ever done. Right? That would be one approach, right? Versus the fear of the Lord is like, you know, I'm super concerned for you. Because there is a God. He is real. I know him. And I know where you are and how you're, you know what I'm saying? Like having the fear of the Lord is you talk like it's real and it's not, it doesn't become self-help at that point. Does that make sense? And so key point, love for God expresses itself by telling of his glory and wondrous works to others. We seek to spread his fame. When we are passionate about the Lord, joyful proclamations of his goodness and greatness will bubble up from within. 
Okay, now what is the second greatest commandment? Is to love others. Now, how does Paul express his love for his neighbors in Romans 9.3? Somebody want to read that? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinship according to the flesh. Okay. One of the most convicting verses in the entire Bible. Yeah. What's Paul willing to do? He's willing to give up his... Um, Salvation for others. Yeah. I will be condemned so that my countrymen who hate me and hate God won't be condemned. Right? That is unbelievable. Right? You can kind of see the kind of the heart of Christ in Paul, right? Where he's willing to give himself in place of the countrymen. I mean, how did the knowledge of Israel's fate affect Jesus in Luke 19.41? Right? When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. Yeah. I mean, he's broken up about it. Okay? And I think, you know, a lot of times if you go to an evangelism conference, this is often love for the Lord and people going to hell is like the driving force. Uh, going back to the 90s, Standwicks, Flanagan's. Remember Steve Green's song, People Need the Lord? Right? They'd all be like starving children in Africa, you know, Muslims bound down in a mosque. And you'd hear Stephen Green saying, People need the Lord. And you, know, you just know that all these people will die a Christless eternity unless somebody tells them about Jesus, right? Very powerful, right? But. What's the danger of making that the driving motivation for sharing our faith? There's more to God than, you know, the consequences of mm -hmm. what happens if you don't believe in God. I mm -hmm. think saying, if you don't, you know, I'm going to share my faith because I'm scared that you're going to go to hell. Yeah, that that is a good reason, but there's... Yeah. Because God deserves it, because God created you, because God has a purpose mm -hmm. for you. It's more than just because you're gonna, you know, suffer an eternity in hell. Like yeah. There's so much more than just that. Yeah. That's good. Other thoughts? I mean, it kind of sounds like you're almost pitting yourself against God. Like how many people can we save from his wrath necessarily? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts? Unintentional consequences of just <coughs> focusing only on that? You're kind of running from the, the punishment instead of it's only one side of the equation. Yeah. The joy of <coughs> fellowship with the Lord is completely out of it. You're just yeah. running from the punishment of it. Yeah. And remember what you have, like a me-centered culture is like, oh, for my sake I better do this. 
instead of, you know, this is God, this is for his sake. You could be right with him and know him. Or that it depends on you. Or that it depends on you. Yeah. Puts a lot of pressure on someone. Mm-hmm. It's like it depends on you to stay God's wrath. Yeah. You're trying to protect other people from God. Yeah. Right? And that, and honestly, when people are only motivated by this, sometimes their conviction about hell and sin and all that stuff begins to diminish. Mm-hmm. The temptation is to try to save as many people as you can, so you might broaden the umbrella to include who's saved and who's not. But if you're motivated to glorify God and you have a high view of God and that's what drives your evangelism, that's going to preserve the gospel because you know you're just announcing his gospel. You're not trying to get people saved. Does yeah, that make sense? You're trying to glorify him, not help somebody out of hell. I think there's there's I don't know if it's cultural or across times, but there's a tendency to when we talk about hell, like people are like helpless victims that we're trying to save them from. Mm-hmm. And it's that we get this like all those arguments about how could you know salvation for people who haven't heard the gospel like instead of it takes our attention away from our own um, depravity and deserving Mm -hmm. being deserving of hell and I think sometimes that colors the way that we share the gospel it's not you deserve to go to hell and God is right like it kind of can take away from his honor his Mm -hmm. glory his righteousness his justice that we rightly deserve yep. to be in hell, and it would be a good thing for God to punish us yeah. for the wickedness that we've done. Yeah. But yeah. Right, he's chosen to be gracious. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know, well, God's got this thing. He's all hung up on sin. Yeah. <laughs> we got to do something about it. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It's just to minimize the sin and yeah. sometimes. So that makes sense. I just wanted to get a little bit of a paradigm shift here, Okay. Uh, now next week we're going to do an all church Sunday school um, and then the week after we'll, we'll return to how to get over your, your fear of evangelism so let me pray that I'll let you guys go well Father I'm thankful for just who you are and I pray that your that who you are will anchor what we do that we will be driven to honor you in all things even our evangelism I pray that you'll give us opportunities to proclaim your goodness to this world that uh, we will uh, go forward in the fear of God and teach others to fear you as well. In Christ's name, amen.